all of you uh, who are beaming in for an opportunity to be with those of you from Manhattan Mennonite on the other side of the continent on the second Sunday in Eastertide, as well as the maybe half of you who from our BCM network who are tuning in from around the country. It's so good to be together. I'm beaming in to you from the little town of Oakview, uh, halfway up the Ventura River watershed in Southern California. This is the heart of Chumash traditional and unceded territory on whose land we live and work with Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. I gotta say, I'm a little wonky from my second COVID vax um, that I had late Friday, but nevertheless, I send you greetings in the name of the Risen One. And the joy reflected in the California golden poppy wildflowers bursting forth throughout our yard, despite our current drought. May Creator illuminate our conversation this morning. We've got a lot to get to, so let's jump in. Eastertide is obviously a good time to reflect on the meaning of resurrection. And I think it's fair to say um, this has been underemphasized in our churches, including among Mennonites. In general, the whole matter of corpse resuscitation is a bit of an embarrassment to our modern presumptions. But frankly, the far more serious problem is how this part of the Jesus story has, among many U.S. churches, been romanticized and trivialized, turned into some kind of Hollywood ending. Little wonder that those of us trying to face our world as it is, under the shadow of biological and racial viruses and ultimatums of social and climate crisis, are a little ambivalent about these happily ever after theologies. The truth is, Bourgeois Christianity has exhibited a certain evil genius for domesticating the resurrection by chocolate coating it, especially at Easter, during which popular commercial culture entirely replaces Jesus with confectionary cottontails, or worse, conflates them, the only redeeming feature of which is some hilarious parody. And the only thing worse than our chocolate coating of the tradition is our whitewashing it of it. Our theological and political imaginations have been profoundly stunted by white Christian artistic depictions of the risen Christ, whether European classical or contemporary American lowbrow. In such images, Christ is scrubbed, laundered, and bleached entirely white. So, so white. White chocolate, an unbearable whiteness of being. But make no mistake, such religious visualizations have long been essential building blocks of white supremacy in the West. They pollute our minds and hearts. And oh my God, white Jesus is rising, floating above the world, inviting us to preoccupy and distract ourselves with the otherworldly. And look, Ma, no scars. Needless to say, such a bloodless, docetic Christianity, there's the definition, if that's a new word for you, is entirely unable and unwilling to challenge our carbon and capitalist status quo. But the good news, beloved, is that these kinds of toxic images, though still ubiquitous among us and indeed within us, do not correlate to our scriptural accounts of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which are earthy and engaged and so not white. But before we look at our gospel reading, Let's adjust our lens by considering a very different image drawn from our own racial history to see if we can rescue the Bible from Disneyland 
and replace it back in the real world. Here I need to give a trigger warning. Some of the slides going forward are of traumatized flesh. In 1955, Mamie Till Mobley decided to have an open casket at the memorial of her murdered son, Emmett. And it became a galvanizing moment that reignited the civil rights movement. A few weeks earlier, this young mother from Southside Chicago had sent her 14-year-old son on a train to Money, Mississippi to visit relatives. For allegedly whistling at a white woman, Emmett was abducted and savagely beaten by the woman's husband and his half-brother, then shot in the head and dumped in a river. The body was discovered three days later, so disfigured that Till was only identifiable by the initials on his ring. Mississippi officials advocated for a quick burial, wishing literally to bury the whole inconvenient matter. But Mamie demanded that the body be sent home as is to Chicago and displayed publicly. Thousands attended funeral, viewing her son's mutilated body. Mamie was insisting that America gaze on the reality of Jim Crow brutality. Lonnie Bunch, founding director of the National Museum of American History and Culture, explains, Mamie saw Emmett as being crucified on the cross of racial injustice and felt that in order for his life not to be in vain, she needed to use that moment to illuminate all the dark corners and help push America toward what we now call the civil rights movement. Indeed, just a few months later, the Montgomery bus boycott sparked that movement back to life. Historian Elliot Gorn points out, however, that this awakening was only among black folk. Most whites didn't even see the pictures of Till until decades later. I wanna suggest that <clears throat> Luke's portrait of the crucified and risen Christ similarly challenges us to reckon with the traumatic somatic. It too illustrates how the trauma of a brutalized body passes to those who truly encounter it and how this in turn animates a movement to struggle for a different world of justice and dignity. This evening's uh, lection is actually for next Sunday, which was when I was originally scheduled to preach, but it's one of my favorite texts. So Jason, let me keep it for today. Thanks, Jason. And I want us to look afresh at Luke's version of John's more famous Doubting Thomas story in which Jesus' disciples encounter him risen, but with wounds intact. Sorry about this slide, it got a little screwed up. The context of this episode is the venerable Emmaus Road tale on which two disciples famously meet Jesus. Once again, religious art has transformed this scene through sentimentality, as in the, this famous painting by Swiss pietist artist Robert Zund. It portrays a warm and tranquil Disney landscape in the tradition of the Hudson River School of Romantic Art, a summer stroll and delightful tete-a-tete with a risen Lord. As if, I mean, we're talking about two unindicted co-conspirators who were on the lam just three days after the summary execution of their leader. Tranquil? I doubt it. Rather, these dazed and confused disciples would be getting the hell out of Dodge on a back road. And Luke's narration of their exchange with the stranger makes it clear that they are upset, afraid, and bitterly disappointed at these crushing political events. Kind of how colleagues of Martin Luther King Jr. were feeling the day after his assassination in Memphis in 1968. 
I actually have a feel for this because I worked for many years as an organizer for one of those colleagues who was actually there, one of King's lieutenants, though he only spoke of it once because it was so traumatic for him. And above all, what do we make of the fact that these hard-pressed fugitives don't have eyes to see their leader? A logical explanation, though, because of the sanitization of Easter is never considered, is that Jesus' visage had been completely distorted by his interrogation, torture, and execution a few days before. They simply didn't recognize him. Here I offer as correlating testimony a powerful interpretation of those famous before and after photos of Emmett Till's face displayed at the funeral. Artist Lisa Whittington's piece is poignantly titled, How She Sent Him and How She Got Him Back. This suggests how it is entirely possible that the crucified and now risen Jesus was completely unrecognizable, even to those who knew him. In the Emmaus Road story, the mysterious acompañante listens to the hysterics and rage of these fit-to-be-tied disciples, then responds by reminding them of their own prophetic tradition. He does so rather brusquely with a rhetorical slap upside the head. Read it not so much as, what's up, fools, as, yo, wake up and smell the coffee. Jesus then urges them to reread their fraught circumstances under the shadow of death, guided not by the dismembered historiography and mendacious eschatology of empire, but rather by the sacred stories of their ancestors who fought the good fight and paid with their lives. This is incidentally the first recorded Bible study in the life of an Easter church that hasn't even yet been birthed at Pentecost but one that makes modern theological liberals blush while defying the hermeneutic program of theological conservatives. It's just like those OGs told you, says the stranger. Ain't nothing different now. That's how it is, homies. Some of us gonna have to die for change to come. This seminary of the road culminates, as you know, in the famous, were not our hearts burning within us moment in which the stranger is revealed to them over a communion meal implied by the take, bless, break, give string of verbs. Here is a deep mystical irony. Only by existentially encountering Jesus' death in the Eucharist can we recognize the risen Christ. To paraphrase Isaiah, by his still visible stripes is our blindness to the cost of discipleship healed. Yet this moment of communion has not escape domestication either. In Caravaggio's original Supper at Emmaus, Jesus appears quite matronly while the disciples are rough like true peasants. So 17th century church authorities made Caravaggio redo the painting with more conventional images, including a woman properly serving them dinner. It's part of that long history of white chocolate coating of our religious tradition. So while we're on the subject, I prefer this interpretation of that Lucan moment, as does your pastor, since another version of it appears in your bulletin today. Filipino artist Emmanuel Garibay, son of a Methodist preacher, who I had the great honor of doing a program with uh, last fall, describes his process in this piece. 
I thought that by representing Jesus in a radically different way, that of a woman, and especially a woman who appears to be of ill repute, who drinks with the guys and has stories to tell, it would really challenge the viewers to carefully consider the implication of seeing Jesus in other people, especially those who are downtrodden, especially those upon whom society looks down. That's why in the picture, the disciples, these two men, are laughing so hard because they've just realized their mistaken no notion of Jesus. He's not male. He's not Caucasian. And the, they're just busting out laughing at this epiphany because Filipinos, writes Garibay, love to laugh. So now, finally, we pick up our text, the second half of the Emmaus narrative, in which the action dramatically reverses directions. The two disciples who were introduced as hightailing it out of Jerusalem after Jesus' execution now return to the scene of the crime. And there, the fractured community regathers in a safe house, and the pair relates their experience to the other members of the movement. First, they describe the extraordinary catechism in prophetic literacy that they received on the Emmaus Road. And then, how the stranger who expounded scripture was revealed to them over a meal as none other than their leader, Redivivas. At which point, Jesus appears again, now to the whole group, greeting them in ca casual, customary fashion. The disciples' reaction, surprised now for the second time in the story, is instructive. Luke reports that they were terrified and awestruck. These two Greek words, a double iteration of fear, are worth drilling down on. The first is the verb toeo, which means to be terrified. Of course, this is entirely understandable. These disciples were scared stiff by their leader's execution, just as black and brown people everywhere today continue to be terrified by the searing image of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's necks. And of course, we are mindful of the week coming up in the trial in Minneapolis. In antiquity, crucifixion was a gruesome form of public execution reserved only for political dissidents. It had only one function in Roman Palestine, to intimidate subjects in the occupied territories. It was a very effective way of broadcasting the message, look what happens to those who challenge the hegemony of Caesar. Notably, only one other time does this verb appear in the New Testament, and that is in Jesus' earlier counsel in Luke, that when you hear of wars and upheavals, do not be terrified. He warns that these things are inevitable given the nature of empire, which also means that it is inevitable that speaking truth to power will earn profits dire political consequences, as the stranger has just explained in his Emmaus Road Bible study. The other adjective in, used here in Luke's story, however, has a different focus. It is emphobos, which in the New Testament usually connotes awe in the presence of divine power. This dual vocabulary suggests that the disciples were caught between two types of fear. On one hand, they cower before the handiwork of imperial terrorism imprinted on the body of Jesus. On the other, they reel before the prospect somehow Rome has not had the last word, that the divine conspiracy for life has burst death's straitjacket. 
Jesus the Executed Rebel is back and ready to continue organizing the movement, which means these disciples have to keep going. I believe this meme rather concisely captures in a contemporary mode the conflicting emotions that the disciples are experiencing in this moment. Here's where Luke's Encuentro really gets interesting. The disciples' initial reaction is that they must be only seeing a spirit. Now, pneuma is an important theological term throughout the New Testament, but here it is not nearly sufficient. The risen one may be elusive, but does not want to be mistaken as elusive. So having already gone unrecognized once back on the road, Jesus now offers his bona fide, his body. He invites their investigation of his wounds. As we meditate uh, on this contemporary recontextualization of Caravaggio's famous painting, let's notice two things about Jesus' explanation for why he's putting his torn up flesh on display. Because they're crucial for a theology of incarnation, which we Christians usually talk about at Christmas, but rarely at Easter. First, he uses the phrase, it is I, ego eimi, which is, of course, the Greek equivalent of the tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name of God transliterated in the four Hebrew letters, yod he vav he, best transliterated as I will be who I will be. But this divine moniker is immediately linked to his flesh and bones. God incarnate as sarks as flesh was a notion as scandalous in antiquity as it is in modernity. But this intensifies the scandal because this is flesh tortured, pierced, violated. Now, as we already noted, in Western religious art, Jesus' wounds typically appear rather antiseptic, even in Janet McKenzie's Risen Black Jesus, and definitely here in Caravaggio's original. You'd think Jesus just had arthroscopic surgery or something. Once again, we see the sanitizing tendency in the white religious imagination, but that's not Luke's story. The open casket of Emmett Till becomes a crucial hermeneutic lens because Jesus' flesh would have borne all the marks of the hell he'd been through. He invites disciples to examine his hands and feet, not because they were the most easily accessed part of his body from under his tunic, but because they would have been the most mutilated parts by the process of being nailed to a tree. These mangled extremities verify that the risen one is the crucified one. The former neither negates nor supplants the latter. The resurrected Christ is not unscathed by the violence of empire. He is still numbered among those who have been brutalized and left for dead. Except that Jesus didn't stay down. So now his body becomes the central object lesson of both lynching and liberation. Well, I guess the disciples are kind of riding a roller coaster here, and they refuse to believe the joyful prospect, um, this as astonishing as Jesus 2.0. Again, it's understandable, but why they try to sort out their confusion, an exhausted Jesus asks almost 
whimsically, dudes, these have been a long couple of days since I declared a fast at our last meal together, and I've been through, you know, a lot. Anybody got a sandwich for a brother? And he ate it before them, states the narrative matter-of-factly. Another way Luke centers the somatic. Just as Jesus still bears the scars of his showdown with empire, his body continues to feel hunger. Disciples are thus invited not only to touch flesh that has experienced violation and deprivation, but also to attend to its needs. This, I want to assert, is the central object lesson of resurrection faith, to embrace the traumatic somatic in order to stand with those who suffer. Now, in addition to your pastor's most recent book, Bowery Mission, Grit and Grace on Manhattan's Oldest Street, which I assume members of Manhattan Mennonite have all read, I want to recommend two new books that illuminate Luke's call to solidarity. One is the late Murphy Davis's memoir, Surely Goodness and Mercy, the extraordinary account of her 25-year battle with cancer while resisting the powers of death in the prison industrial complex in Georgia and beyond. Murphy knew about the traumatic somatic from the inside out, as does her widower and my friend Edward Loring, who I think might be watching this service tonight from Baltimore. You can find Murphy's memoir at the Open Door community site shown here. Secondly, I'd be remiss and in trouble with my partner Elaine if I didn't also mention our own re recent publication, Healing Haunted Histories, a settler discipleship of decolonization, the foreword um, to which was written by June Lorenzo, who's on the call tonight, which invites us settlers into solidarity with those who have suffered and survived the somatic traumas wrought by settler colonialism on bodies and on the body of earth for 500 years. You can find that book. Uh, at the URL shown here. I hope you'll take a look at these volumes to further explore the themes of tonight's reflection. To summarize and conclude, the terrible epiphany of Emmett Till's funeral resurrected the most significant social movement in US history. As Mamie Till put it, people move from standing by to standing up. I've suggested this as an analogy from our history to help us probe underneath the whitewashing of our resurrection stories in scripture. Luke's account of the risen crucified Lord exhibits two things, <clears throat> both of which receive little attention in our churches. On one hand, he centers the traumatic somatic aspect of the risen Jesus body. On the other hand, Luke interprets Jesus' execution through the lens of the biblical prophetic tradition, that is, the deep and continuing history of those struggling against empire and for God's sovereignty. I love this image of the black Jesus hugging the sacred scrolls. Thus, after Jesus had finished his Easter fish dinner, he resumes the scripture study that he had begun with those forlorn disciples on the Emmaus Road. He opened their minds, says Luke again, as he did before, so that they might understand the scriptures. Again here, the vocabulary is significant. The verb dianoigo means to open faculties of perception that have been shut down by empire. And the verb to understand, sunimi, paraphrase, I would paraphrase as 
connecting the dots usually employed in the New Testament to describe those many situations in which disciples are unable to make such connections. Oops, let's try again. Jesus reframing insists that their discipleship journey has a future, but that it also has a past. And then comes the commissioning to take up the prophetic struggle to turn history around, which is the meaning of repentance. And this mission is not just to individuals, but also to nations and systems, starting at the centers of power for Luke, Jerusalem, for us, Washington, D.C., or Ottawa. In other words, Jesus' resurrection can empower their insurrection against the powers of death. And the risen crucified one concludes with these words, alluding to the prophet Isaiah. You are witnesses to these things. And there's the rub. Because that first person plural subject includes us, indeed implicates us as readers, hearers of this gospel. Note here the word martures, from which our word martyr comes. So it turns out this is not a Hollywood ending, but a Bonhoeffer ending, affirming that discipleship is and always has been costly. It's a far cry from chocolate Easter eggs. So I end as I began, offering a blessing in the name of the risen one. May you and I live into this call to resurrection as insurrection in our worry world. And thank you again for the opportunity to be with you in this way. And with that, I will turn it back to you, Jason. Thank you.